I'm Lauren Hunter. And I'm Kate Vlasic. And this is Generation BSC. Generation BSC is our bi-weekly... It's a bi-weekly, semi-weekly. Semi-weekly would be two times a week. I don't know why that just popped into my head. Like, I feel like I say bi-weekly every time I introduce it. You probably do, too. And I was suddenly like, is it bi-weekly? Am I using the wrong word? <laughs> it's so funny that you said that because I literally just had this conversation in one of my classes. I used the term bi-weekly and somebody was like, that means twice a week, not every other week. And somebody was like, no, we looked it up. It's both. Seriously? Like bi-weekly, bi-monthly. Yeah. <laughs> oh my same God. Same with semi. It's, it's so confusing. Like semi-annual, is that twice a year or every other year? And it's it's like both. Uh, the, people use it interchangeably. Okie dokie. Well, then this is definitely a bi-weekly podcast or semi-weekly <laughs> or, you know, whatever you want to talk about <laughs> every other week. <laughs> bi-weekly is the, what I always use because that in, in HR world, that's when you get paid every other week. Uh, it's yes, bi-weekly That pay. makes sense. So Okay. Well, this is our bi-weekly podcast about Babysitter's Club. And we talk about each book in chronological order, what we remember from reading them as children, what we love talking about now, what looking back was maybe problematic or not covered quite as much as you might want it to be in the most thoughtful way, like we might talk about in this episode. We'll see. Maybe just a smidge. <laughs> Maybe just, you know, a foreshadowing of what's to come. We'll see. Um, but yeah, it's uh, us two geriatric millennials talking about our love of the <laughs> Babysitter's Club. <laughs> and I'm leaning into the geriatric millennial. It delights me how much it delights you, how much it annoys me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it annoyed me too, but I think that I'm just like fully on board now. Embracing I'm just, like, it. You know what? Yeah. You want to talk shit about millennials? Like, I'm an OG millennial. Like, deal with it. I'm just going to be who I am and yep. love what I love. And right now, I oh, love yeah. the Babysitter's Club. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about the embracing. I was just telling my mom about this. I heard this new theory about the fact that we were all born with a finite amount of fucks to give. <laughs> and so when you're young, you're throwing your fucks around all the time oh, yeah. because, you know, it feels like you've got a million. But as you get older, you realize your supply of fucks is starting to dwindle. <laughs> got to save So up. you have to start – you start rationing out what you give a fuck about. And the older you get, the less the less fucks there right. are to give. You exactly. get, like, maybe one or two a year. <laughs> right. It's got to be, like, a big, big deal to actually, like, get riled up about. And with everything exactly. going on in our world today, like, there's a lot of things to really get riled up about. And being called a geriatric millennial just does not rise to the level of needing to have any fucks given. <laughs> you you are exactly, exactly right. Oh, boy. So this book, I, let me just say, I, I was just sitting here thinking, I was like, I mean, we're not ever really known for, I don't know, staying on track, getting to the point quickly, <laughs> like, doing things in the order we claim we're going to. But we have now devolved into our two maybe most random tangents, and that's saying something, <laughs> before we've even mentioned the name of the book. And I think, at least for me, definitely part of that is a somewhat reluctance to, like, even get into it. Yes. Because – and I, I don't mean that because I don't didn't like the book or didn't find it enjoyable or – I don't know. It's not bad the way that some of the other ones that have, like, made me angry mm -hmm. have – I have very, very mixed emotions about this, yeah. but it's like all of them, <laughs> if, that, if that makes sense. Just so, a, a fruit salad of every emotion imaginable. I Well, I think like I'm looking over my notes, you know, as we always try to talk about our big themes and figure out like what are the what are the, our, our big ideas for the episode. And I was like, I, I sort of highlight things as I go through and looking at my notes. And the big one that was standing out to me today <laughs> was... Oof, careful what you wish for when it comes to the discussion of income inequality in Stony Brook. <laughs> because right. we had 
numerous times talked about, you know, how they don't engage with that at all. And I, I did they? I, that's kind of part of my, like, I don't even know if that's, if, if it would be fair to say that they did engage with income inequality in this book, but they engaged with it in that they mentioned that it existed. Yeah. And uh, I mean, welfare, they, okay. We yeah. Just, yes, let, let's, let's talk about what the book is, how we skipped over doing predictions last time, maybe because we knew Indeed. we didn't really want to get into it subconsciously. We'll see. Then we can talk yeah. about um our, our great ideas and yeah, how this book was like good, but also I really definitely don't need to revisit it. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's exactly, I, I think, where I landed as well. I mean, I, I mentioned in the Mystery Admirer last week that I had blocked out the toenails. Um, <laughs> this one, when we talk about the predictions, I, I'll get to how I, like I have weird blocks around this. I, I weirdly enough, I think I have some like lowercase t trauma around <laughs> around this book from both as a kid and then now reading it as an adult. Um, it, it like it was a, it was a deeply unsettling thing to read as an adult, mm-hmm. uh, which is very strange. So. Let's talk about what was unsettling. We are talking about one of the most infamous, I would say, Babysitter's Club books. Like, this is one that that most people are at least aware of and aware of the concept. Um, and that is book number 39, Poor Mallory, a.k.a. the one where Mallory is, like, actual poor. So not, like, poor Mallory, like, wah-wah sucks to be Mallory. <laughs> I mean, kind of both. So. Yeah, it, it has two two meanings. We, we can write a, you know, a thesis on the the thinking behind titling this one poor mallory yeah i'm sure ann was very pleased with herself on on coming <laughs> up with that one uh because this was in fact actually ann m martin and was released in november 1990 so poor mallory let's let's just get the back of the book let's just let's do this dive right in rip the bandaid off okay <laughs> there's some bad news in the pike family mallory's dad has just lost his job And since money is going to be tight until Mr. Pike finds a new job, all eight of the Pike kids have decided to help out. Nikki gets a paper route, Vanessa tries selling her poetry, and Mallory takes babysitting jobs in Christie's ritzy neighborhood. But being around the Delaney's only makes Mallory feel poor. They have a cat that costs $400 and tennis courts in their backyard. Poor Mallory. She needs the babysitters now more than ever. Okay. I mean, interesting that they mentioned the tennis courts, but not the pool. Right. I mean, the, just, the pool is like, an integral part of the plot of this book. <laughs> and they, they exactly. lean into the tennis courts aspect of it. Well, because it definitely is when I did make that note when they introduce when Mallory is talking about the, the Delaney's, you know, of course, she marvels over the fountain. And then she mentions that they have two tennis courts, but they but is really everybody's really excited about this pool. And it's in ground, of course. Of course. And I was like, I, it. At least in my experience in Southern Ohio, pools were, I mean, you were definitely wealthy, but they weren't like unheard of. Um, and even like, I, I mean, I knew plenty of families, they were above ground, but you know, who mm-hmm. were, I would never have considered or would not have considered themselves affluent or wealthy yeah. in any way, but you know, had a pool. Tennis courts in the backyard, on the other hand, that to me just screams like 1%. Yeah. And multiple tennis courts. Exactly. I mean, even one one individual tennis court would be like, wow, that person is rich. And yet they have right? two. Yeah. I'm- I felt rich because I grew up in a neighborhood where there was a tennis – where there were tennis courts that you had to have, like, a membership and live in the neighborhood to belong to. Mm-hmm. Like, that felt super ritzy to me because it was exclusive. Like, no – you couldn't just wander onto the court. 
So <laughs> there was a key. You had to ask Dennis, the pool right. manager. <laughs> <laughs> Who, by the way, Dennis is still the pool manager. And he's still like, it's 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 a very strange feeling because I haven't lived there in very many years. But every once in a while, every couple of years, I'll like drop something off to my parents while they're there or like we'll have a family picnic or something. And it's still Dennis and he looks the same, but not. <laughs> and there's like something about like reverting to like eight-year-old Lauren oh, just yeah. like wandering around the pool deck and there's Dennis like, don't run, Lauren. I mean, it's like the same thing as like seeing your childhood friend's parents still. Like yes. they're still Mr. and Mrs. whoever or, you know, Ms. whoever or whatever. And it's just like, I, I, like I'm a full-blown adult and like they have told me, you, you know, you can call me, you know, whatever their first name might be. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Can't do it. yeah, Mm-mm. no, I, I objectively, I understand that. But like my brain, you are Mr. Whoever, Mrs. Whoever, Ms. Whoever, like you are, that that's your name. Like, I understand you have a first name, but I, I am not allowed to use it. I will never use it. <laughs> I honestly think that that's one of the reasons I sort of buck so hard against the geriatric label, which I mean, it doesn't actually bother me the way that, <laughs> that, that a little bit of that is a, you know, playing it up for uh, for effect, would never do that. Never, that never. Me. But part of it is that I just I don't feel like an adult still. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that that's one of the things that's so fun and interesting about reading these books from this perspective. To try to at least bring our our third random tangent back to some <laughs> semblance of, of of the point is that like especially with this one approaching it, I like I remember reading this as a kid. I remember what feelings it brought up in me as a kid. I did not remember any of the plot points. Mm-hmm. Like, that is what I meant by, like, the predictions thing. I very much remembered that this is the one where Mallory's dad lost her job. I remembered that everybody was, like, pitching in and that it was really intense. I didn't remember anything about the Delaney's. Mm-hmm. I didn't remember anything about, like, the specifics about the job or the search or who was happening or whatnot. But I remember that. And I remember that that made me deeply uncomfortable because there was a time period when I was young that my dad went through like a couple of jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there was like a layoff. There was one that he just wasn't very happy in his job. So he was looking for another one. And like, again, and this is what I mean by, the, by that trippiness of the adult is that looking back at that as an adult, that seems totally normal. Yeah. You know, I've, I've changed jobs multiple times. I've had multiple layoffs and periods of unemployment. So talk, that's the other like adult side of this reading this now. I was like, oof. I, I, it, it was not fun and I like to remember that feeling. Mm-hmm. But I think that I was just aware of like the precariousness mm-hmm. of jobs and what the impact of that would mean. It was like we were never in danger. Like we were never I, – I definitely grew up comfortably. But especially when I was young, especially during that time period, I remember a vague awareness that, you know – something could go wrong. Mm-hmm. And if something could go wrong, like uh, being a, very similar to how Mallory felt on this. And I really think that that's why I blocked it so much. I think that that's, I think I read it at that time. As I was reading it, I had these very visceral memories, like uh, of feelings, emotions mm-hmm. coming back up. And I think that, like you said, read it once, don't need to revisit it. I, I think that was me as a kid that yeah. I was like, especially because the time that I would have been reading it was, was that, that period time period yeah. when it was a little bit unstable and so i think it probably was just too close to home and i just fully was like i pulled a joey and like stuck it in the freezer <laughs> like nope just nope. just not I'm for me just, just package this one up and pretend it doesn't exist and um yeah i had a roughly very similar reaction this go round um to a lot of it so what about you i know you briefly mentioned when we were because it came up um I don't know. I don't remember why. But when we were 
in Christie's Mystery Admirer. I think you said you didn't really remember it, or I, I can't remember. But um, what what is what were your if we had done predictions? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing that's funny about the predictions is like I I would say the same thing I'm about to say is that I don't think I read this one. I I do not recall, it, but like I remember that at some point Mallory's dad lost his job because I know we've talked about this like even you know several books ago it, it sort of came up and we mentioned that that was coming and I and when we talked about that it was like oh my god when is that going to happen like I knew objectively that it happened and I figured it was this book but like I don't think I read this and reading it again I was like I have no recollection of any of these like specific plot points like kind of the same as you but like I don't even I didn't even really remember like the overarching plot other than. Mallory's dad lost his job, which I think is just because I knew it because I read other books around this one. I was going to say, I, I, if so, we can do kind of a reverse prediction, uh, future prediction. Well, that is <laughs> what a prediction is. No, nah, I'm an idiot. But what I, I meant is, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, it becomes part of Mallory's introduction. <laughs> like, oh. her dad lost his job for a while, but it, that would it's gotten a new it. one. It, like, and, which is really funny to think about when you think about it now, but I'm like, no, I think that's, I think that's what that, I think that just becomes, right. You know, like the way that they talk about Stacy's divorce and move back. Like, right. Yeah. This was, oof. This was not a pleasant read and Mm-mm. I can't imagine it would have been pleasant as a, for kids either. No. Like it, there's, there's nothing fun about this at all. Like talk about a wild tone swing. I mean, even the like, Life and death stakes of the island adventure, you know, even the book they treats it, they treat it as fun. We were the ones going like, <laughs> oh, this is like real life. The book is absolutely treating this as seriously as real life in a way that is unusual a little bit for mm-hmm. the series to, to this point so far. It just, this seemed not massively out of, out of tone step with everything else, but certainly like a half a step removed if uh, for me anyway i don't know if that if, if that makes sense to you but it just there was so much less fun here like even the side like the delancey the delancey the delaney plot you know normally those those babysitting gigs are are you know some fun misadventures mm-hmm. to sort of lighten the the tone and maybe add a little something to the to the theme but uh, while this was very on theme, and which as opposed to the ones that are just, you know, a random misadventure, yeah. it was also depressing. Mm-hmm. So, like, there was just, I, I mean, but I, I yeah, I, I, now that I'm thinking about it, though, I'm like, on second thought, I suppose you can't really go from Mallory and her family, like, worrying about homelessness and their mortgage and the welfare possibility to, like, let's all come in. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? I, I, so that that makes sense. It just feels out of step with the rest of the series in a way that is interesting. But I again, I have kind of mixed emotions on how I feel about like I, I couldn't decide the whole time whether I thought it was good that kids were that, like this is something that kids were getting or this is unnecessary. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it was unnecessary. I think the plot itself was maybe not unnecessary, but like. <laughs> The thing that I kept coming back to as I was reading it is like, so we're seeing this from Mallory's perspective. And so Mallory is maybe being as dramatic as a, an 11-year-old would be seeing her family going through this. So like, I'm not faulting the way that they're telling the story so much 
Because it does make sense for Mallory as a character to, like, automatically assume, like, okay, all of us kids, we need to, you know, make sure that we do everything we can to save money. We need to help out as much around the house. We need to earn money and give it to mom and dad. Like, I can totally see an 11-year-old, especially an 11-year-old with seven brothers and sisters, and, you know, only one parent works. Like, I can see her making that leap. But, like, the way... Like, if reading, if I had read this as a child, I think it would have made me, like, scared and, like, paranoid and, like, you know, thinking that if this would happen in my family, I need to do the same thing as Mallory. And, like, especially when they, when she talks about what her dad is going through, when he is very clearly in a, like, serious depressive situation, whether he has an actual, like, mental, you know, disability or, you know, mental illness or something that he needs to have treated. But, like, he is clearly depressed and reacting poorly Mm -hmm. to his situation. And, like, and he's able to just snap out of it because Mrs. Pike is like, yo, I'm working. You have to, like, pick up the slack around the house. And he's suddenly like, this is great. And then Mallory's, like, afraid that he's going to like being at home too much and not want to find a new job. Like, it just, it goes through all of these, like, ups and downs. And I can understand an 11-year-old having those feelings. But I don't think it was a responsible way to tell this story to kids that are going to be younger than Mallory's age who are going to, like, internalize this the way that you just said happened to you. Like, it, yeah. it impacted you in, a, a like, a traumatic way in a certain, you know, in a certain respects. And, like, I think that one of the things that frustrated me about this book is, like, we get to the end and Mallory's parents are like, it was great of you guys to all, like, band together and have each other to lean on, and we appreciate that you wanted to give us money and all of that. And But they're like, yeah, dad got severance, you know, mom's going to keep working because she likes it. Like, everything is fine, and I think that that's part of the thing that frustrated me, too. And I guess now as I'm, like, talking through it, I, I <laughs> retroactively like it less and less. But, like, it just frustrates me that it's a, a, a one-month issue. You know, like he loses his job. And by the time Mallory's one month babysitting job with the Delaney's is over, he has a new job and he loves it. And it's great. And he's probably going to get a promotion next year. And it's everything's like hunky dory. And it it's just frustrating. And this happens in other books. Obviously, we've talked about this, like the issue gets raised and then it gets addressed by the end of the book. And it has to be that way for most of these things. But it, this story in particular, I feel like that's a really irresponsible way to tell this story because most of the time, it it doesn't work out that well. I mean, you know, I mean, eventually, hopefully, you know, everything would work well. But like, losing your job, finding a new job within a month, and starting that new job within a month, like, even in 1990, that was not happening, and it certainly isn't yeah. happening now. <laughs> you know, like, I just, I don't know. It, it it's it's frustrating, and I just realized we haven't done um the more detailed description. <laughs> As usual, You're we, right. we You're... skipped over that. So let's do that real quick, and then we don't have yep. to have that hanging over. So in case you all want a little bit more detail, here is uh, the Mallory-specific description for this book. So it's the book about the pros and cons of having money. As we noted was coming down the pike, pun intended, Mrs. <laughs> Mr. Pike <laughs> loses his job at the start of this book when his company lays off half its employees because it was quote-unquote failing. Mrs. Pike starts temping to earn some money while he looks for a new job, and Mallory rallies herself and her siblings to support their parents and try to earn some money to help out monetarily, referring to the eight of them as the Pike Club. The kids use the club to talk about things they're worried about and to brainstorm money-making opportunities and discover they're all dealing with kids being mean 
mean or making fun of them due to their dad's job loss, which includes two girls Mallory previously considered to be friends. Mr. Pike has a tough time at home and stops doing anything around the house until Mrs. Pike reads him the riot act, and he immediately snaps out of it. Mallory takes on as many babysitting jobs as she can at the insistence of the rest of the babysitters club, including a month-long, three-days-a-week job for the Delaney's. The Delaney's have a new pool, and Mallory learns that the grass isn't always greener as Amanda and Max come to find they don't know who is actually a friend and who is just using them for their pool. Mallory helps the Delaney's take a stand and figure out who their true friends are, though, and then confronts the girls at school who continue to be mean and talk about her behind her back. The book ends with Mr. Pike getting a new job that is great and everyone being happy at the Pike house, and Mallory gets to host her first babysitter's club sleepover at her house where the girls eat hoagies, slime the triplets, and prank the mean girls Mallory confronted using Sam Thomas concepts. So, okay, for the babysitter's club specific or general overarching plot, there's not much B-plot here, as we talked about, as two of the non-Mallory babysitting jobs tie into the Delaney's being used to serve the larger plot. For example, Karen and David Michael ditch the Papadakises while Christy is sitting for them because they would rather swim than keep playing with their real friends, and Stacy gets some insight into how Amanda and Max are feeling. The other job is Jessie sitting for her siblings, and Becca invites Vanessa and Charlotte over because Vanessa needs some fun and treats in her life. And as a general note, this book explains a lot of concepts for children readers, including pink slips, welfare, food stamps, mortgages, homelessness, and severance pay. <laughs> yeah, I like that's as you were talking about like the fact that it wrapped up too easily. I think for me, the issue is. Not so much that it wrapped up easily because, like you said, that's just sort of a we, we've we've hashed that out, right? You know, time after time. <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. But I think it's more the fact that it was at the same time not taken very seriously, and then it was all just like, oh, easy peasy, right. wrapped up, done, and also taken so very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where my my concern about it came for for kids i like especially around like you mentioned the depressive episode there is this awful episode uh, uh, scene of claire and Margot like playing dolls and oh like, god i didn't eat each other <laughs> i think i blocked for that out skippers like i mean it's this is deeply depressing and upsetting and i think that that is that's where i got upset is like it is too real it is it is at the same time too real and too babysitter's club that's true. Like it, it, the, it there, there's that push pull tension between the two, it, because the stuff that's real is really real. Like I said, I was like the I, when I read the word welfare in a babysitters club book, mm-hmm. I almost I, I I don't even know. I had no words. I had no reaction. I had no words. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was uh, it's it's so bizarre and. Like, I get what they're going for. And like you said, I think that there's some good stuff there because especially at that time, like, I, I talk about this this time period and, and the economy and stuff a bit, actually, in class because this is where there's sort of a, that generational shift in our views and our feelings around work and mm-hmm. career. And it's really interesting that this book is sort of like plonked right – this was happening when that was happening. Right. And you can sort of see that shift. Like – it was definitely treated as if being poor and being jobless were the absolute worst things they could possibly be and that they were personal moral failings, mm-hmm. which, while that is certainly an attitude that is still there, that was like – that was the 80s to a T. Right. Like that was definitely prevailing. And like like I said about my dad, like, you know, going from a couple of jobs, you know, job to job, at the time as a kid at that age and, and that – where we were in society, that 
did feel very scary because mm-hmm. people got one job and stayed at that job forever. Right. And that was their career. And that's certainly what my mom did. And so it felt like unstable. Whereas that's certainly not how we experience our careers. Right. Um, our, you know, And so one of the things that we talk about in that generational shift is this idea of like loyalty to companies, the younger generations don't have that. And when older generations complain, what they're missing is that they, they watch their parents be loyal to companies and right. companies not be loyal back. And I'm like, what we talked about, what I was internalizing as a kid, watching that, having that experience at home, reading this book, I am that generation. Like we are right. that generational <laughs> shift of like why that's what I, I, I do is preach about how to work differently mm-hmm. and how to be more human at work and blah, blah, blah. Because be- I, like I, this is like some weird core <laughs> like inner key to Lauren that, that unlocked here. So like I, I think it's good that I get that they what they were trying to do. And I think what's maybe interesting is if, if the world hadn't continued to evolve to it – it is the way that it is as we know it today. That was a very strange sentence, but hopefully you got what I meant. And if it instead had been like that, you know, Black Monday, late 80s um, economy dip recession was just a small dip and then it was going to revert right mm-hmm. back to that, you know, the way things had been for the past number of years, decades even really, that the world was going to go back to how it was. Uh, maybe this wouldn't feel as intense and real Mm -hmm. because it was they probably thought it was overblown and in that babysitter's way that we're used to we're like these are like the big the big things that aren't really scary because you know that's not something we actually have to think about Mm -hmm. but i bet you there were tons of kids who read babysitter's club books who did experience homelessness or home loss or job loss or Mm -hmm. not being able to pay for worried about where food was coming from or having kids who had to contribute to the bills Mm -hmm. like that that is a reality and and that's why i think that it that i'm struggling with it is because of that imbalance between the shiny happy comb over like you comb over like gloss over like you talked about and these really serious issues that have only gotten more serious and more real as time has gone by yeah i just yeah i like like you said when we first started talking um for this episode like it's we talk in so many past episodes and so many past books about you know everyone in this town is rich you know it comes across at least that way to us reading them now and so We've always wanted them to acknowledge that. And I think the thing that's interesting is, like, they take this book and they're like, okay. Not that they heard us, you know, <laughs> back through time yeah. to, like, okay, Kate and Lauren, they, they want us to talk about income inequality. So here it comes. But, like, they've just made it, it like, I don't know. Because I'm just having so much, like, frustration talking about this book because it's, like, they're in this like idyllic community where everything is perfect or close to perfect and the issues get wrapped up by the end of the episode very like full house, you know, got the the Danny Tanner moment, which we of course have here as well. And so they're taking something that is a major concern for a lot of people, even people living in a community like Stony Brook, there are things like this that come up. And I think that that was, this was their attempt to be like, just because things seem perfect for people, like, there's other things that can happen that are outside their control. And, like, they just, 
I don't even know how to say it. Like, I'm just so frustrated that I can't find the right words, but it's just like, they didn't do it the right way. I feel like Babysitter's Club either needs to be a fantasy and Mm -hmm. these types of things don't arise and we just acknowledge, like, it is what it is. The Babysitter's Club have their issues, but they're not major systemic global issues. Or... They do a better job with it. You know, like it wouldn't be a one episode or a one book plot where Mallory's dad loses his job. The kids are concerned, but then he gets a new job and everything's better. You know, like it just this type of plot does not lend itself well to the Babysitter's Club format. And while I appreciate that they tried, I think that they really, really dropped the ball in how they carried it out. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I That fantasy, that's what I keep coming back to. I'm thinking like, I mean, just think of Friends. And I guess this is more, I don't, I, we're more aware of it. I don't know that it's actually changed. But like when we're watching television, you know, we are all, it's, it's that suspension of disbelief that, mm-hmm. you know, that Monica and Rachel can afford that enormous apartment right. in New York while Rachel is badly working as a coffee shop waitress and Monica is like a line chef right. in restaurants. <laughs> like, yeah, I get that it's her grandma's and it's rent controlled, but what was it rent controlled in 1940 and never like adjusted, right. you know, anyway, but that's, that's part of that suspension of disbelief. And you're right. Like I, I feel, it feels, I don't want to fe- be unfair because I know one of the things that we have said repeatedly is that we like when the books do tackle the things that are more real and mm-hmm. that do, you know, get into things that are a little bit more reality. But in a, I don't know, like I, this is what I'm really struggling is because I feel like it, for me, it really comes down to tone. Like, mm-hmm. And I don't know how to describe it, but there is like sort of a babysitter's fantasy tone when dealing with the bigger issues, yeah. when dealing with the stuff like the divorce, where it's it's more of an introduction, it's more kept on a kid level, like th- because these are aimed at small children, right? Anywhere from you know five to thirteen, I would say is probably the the oldest. We litigate this all the time, yeah. Every, and and then every time we we think we pin down an age, somebody's like, no, I was reading them at this age, and we're like, okay, whatever. But who, whenever people were reading them, right? But the general consensus is that they are aimed at ages slightly younger than the characters in the book, right? Or Maybe if that's not who they're aimed at, that is generally the the makeup of who is who right. is reading them. So there is this a, there's a thing that about getting them at their level. Where yes, it is like losing your grandparents. That's real. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, parents going through a divorce. That's real. Illness. You know, diabetes. That, that these are all real world issues. And like we said, we like when when they tackle those. There are some books that do a great job of handling those, some that do a less job, but but there's a con- sort of a consistency in the tone of mm-hmm. like the level of of depth. I, that I think that's what it is. Yeah. The level of depth and reality that is given to it. Where in this book, it feels way too real. Mm-hmm. And and that's part of me was was a little concerned because I didn't know how much of that was just my baggage, both mm-hmm. with from reading at the time and then like I said, like I've I've been laid off a couple of times. I've had periods of unemployment. I have been Mr. Pike in that like starting off on, you mm-hmm. know, I'm gonna apply for jobs every day and then you just sit around and like Mallory was talking about how he should be um excited that now he he doesn't have to do the hard work. He just has to sit and wait for the calls to come in. Like that should be a relief. And I'm like, oh no, like Right. Talk, like, that's too real. Like, why is that in right. a children's book? <laughs> exactly. That is not, 
Because anyone read like an adult reading that, and that's what I don't know is because would a kid reading that pick up on the fact that no, him waiting is worse mm-hmm. than, or are they taking Mallory at face value? I, I I don't know. I think that's one of the one of the very few flaws in our concept uh, in our <laughs> podcast. You know, not us going off tangent, right? <laughs> not us forgetting to you know our format, but the fact that. Uh, to some degree, we are kind of missing the point because mm-hmm. we're not the intended audience and we're reading with a more sophisticated, you know, eye. And we, right. and we acknowledge that over and over again. But like some of this stuff, and, and like I said, this is where I'm struggling, is that I can't tell if that sense of uh, depth and reality and that that oof, too real, too real feeling is only we're getting it because we have that adult perspective. Right. That maybe for a kid, that is just, you know, whizzing right past them. Uh, uh, but, and, I should say that, you know, I did carry those. Right. Uh, whether they were, you know, major in something that I was thinking about constantly. But it it had residual shit there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was joking about the lowercase t trauma. But it's not, you know, too much of an exaggeration. There is definitely some static around it. So, so I don't know. Maybe maybe it is. Maybe it's maybe it is one of those things that it's experience dependent. You yeah. Know? Well, and that's what I was gonna say. It's like I feel like someone could read this book as a kid and not take anything away from it, other than oh, Mallory had you know a tough month, and then her family pulled together and everything was great. Or they read it and they take away something similar to you, like you you sort of internalize the feelings that Mallory has and those concerns and, you know, looking at your own life, maybe it impacts you or maybe even, you know, I I bet looking back, like my family, we've been lucky. I mean, my parents have all, they both changed jobs multiple times throughout my childhood. But I think if I had read this, I don't know, I don't know if I would have like had the same reaction you did, but knowing myself and the way that as a kid I would overthink certain things and, you know, get anxious about certain things, there's a very real possibility that even though I don't think that I would have interpreted my parents like looking for and finding a new job as the same way that you did, I still think I would have internalized the anxiety about what if one of my parents loses their job? What does that mean for our family? How will how will we overcome that? Um, you know, I I think I, yeah, I think you're right. I think it, it depends very much on the specific child reading this book and their life experiences and, you know, the way that their brain works and, you know, what what they've had happen in the past, what they're concerned about at the time that they read it. Because it could even be a difference of, you know, if you read it when you're eight versus reading it at nine, you could have a totally different reaction to it. And I think, I mean, I guess you could say that that's the, the case for any of these books, but I think this one in particular is like a prime example of like, impact could be very different because I think you interpret the story differently across the board. But I don't know that most of the other books, you know, maybe, you know, Goodbye Stacy or Welcome Back Stacy, whatever her parents actually get divorced, like that one, you might have more anxiety about what if this happens in my family the same way. But I don't know. I don't know that it would feel the same long-term impact or even short-term impact reading it as, you know, something like <laughs> Christy and the Mystery Admirer, you know, like you might freak out that you yeah. get creepy notes, but like, is that really going to impact you in any real way? Probably not. This book, I think, 
could have some real lasting impacts on a kid reading it, depending on where they're at in their life. And the thing that really I think is is frustrating for me as well is that there is really good stuff here. Like we said, like uh, that, and we've how many times have we had this conversation? I feel like a, a little bit like. Uh, at this point, we should just put our money where our mouth is and like start rewriting I some know. of these plots. <laughs> but like for me, one of the things that I immediately started thinking about that I thought was where the book was kind of going to go a little bit, um, and I think it would have been more correct tone wise for how to deal with this kind of issue. I thought we were going to get into that, like the way we compare our circumstances with others mm-hmm. greatly impacts how we feel about it. Where like Mallory at the beginning, when she first starts babysitting for the Delaney's like is, you know, comparing, you know, where we might not have a home and they've got, you know, swimming pool and tennis courts. Right. At, at, at the end of that chapter, she actually says, I felt like I was nothing like, Whoa, that's what I mean about like real, too real, right? too real. But, and like that is, is definitely something that I responded to because one of the reasons that money was tighter in my family, what even though we were in a good financial position, was because my parents sent us to Catholic school and that was like really important to them. That mm-hmm. was where the, the the bulk of our funds went. So I, I suppose looking back now, like if something had really gone wrong, they would have been able to take us out of the, you know, and, yeah. and save those tuitions. But it, regardless, the point was we were certainly comfortable enough to send me and my siblings to to private mm-hmm. schools and again the the point was more the catholic than the private but the end result is the same and at the same time we were certainly not in the same bracket as most of the other people who attended private schools right. like it was there were there certainly in grade school there was more of a mix but the high school i went to i i've mentioned a couple mm-hmm. of times was incredibly affluent and so, like, comparison being the thief of joy, for me, I did not, like, appreciate how comfortable we were in high school mm-hmm. because all I could see was how much we struggled compared to, you know, all the people around me. And one of the things that was so impactful for me was also recognizing that the comparison goes the other way, too. You know, it's not just about what I don't have, but being grateful for what I do have. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I do a lot of the nonprofit work that I do. And it's it's been hugely helpful. And and in fact, that's something that I that I train on. There's psychology around that. They did a study around salaries where people would be happier to make less money if it is more than another person <laughs> than make more money if it means making less than another person. Right. Uh, and you you know, we're laughing, but then if you're honest with yourself and you really start to think about it, you're like, yeah, I mean yeah, that's how that's how human nature, that's how our brains mm-hmm. work. So I thought that, like, that would have been a really good plot for Mallory. Like, learning, you know, feeling really – having this temporary income setback in her family and have them treat it as such. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that this is not the end of the world. Yes, he did lose his job. Yes, it's going to make things tight for a while. But he has unemployment. We have – or he has a severance. There's unemployment. Mom's going back to work. This is temporary. Like, things are going to be hard for a little uh, for a little while. But, you know, been more – on that level with it mm-hmm. and then have the emotional um, impact of it be Mallory feeling, feeling that income in 
insecurity around being the Delaney's, but then also coming to recognize that they are very fortunate compared to other people. Like, I, I mean, oh, I can see a lot of ways for introducing a poorer character going horribly awry in, <laughs> right. in, in, in these circumstances, but something along those lines where that feels an appropriate level of an emotional depth mm-hmm. for for this this age range. I don't know. I didn't know if you had any thoughts about what you would do differently or or what would or wouldn't work. But yeah, but that was sort of what I was thinking. No, I think I think that's a really good point because I I also as I was reading the thing that I liked a lot about this book was Mallory pulling her kid her siblings together, you know, forming mm-hmm. the Pike Club and being like, "What are you guys worried about? What can we do to support mom and dad? What can we do to support each other?" Like, I really I thought that that was going to be a bigger plot point you know like when it first happened you know like they have the conversation with the parents like we're gonna have to you know not have as many treats for a while things are gonna be a little bit tight mom's gonna go back to work Mallory we're gonna need you to babysit your siblings without getting paid you know and everybody's like on board and and then she's you know they finish that that dinner up and you know she pulls all her siblings into her bedroom with Vanessa and and says okay let's let's talk what can we do what how are you guys feeling like here's how I'm feeling and like I really thought there was going to be more of that, like, pulling together of the Pike kids. And they obviously do do that, but they don't do it to the extent that I think would have really leaned into the storyline that you're talking about, like, finding joy in the things that she does have. And and almost like, I mean, I, there's the comparison and, you know, compare and contrast with the Delaney's. And, like, maybe it would have been interesting if we see, you know, Amanda and Max not pulling together you know, like we we do at least yeah. get get the this plot line of like figuring out who your true friends are and like who's there for you through thick and thin, your ups, your downs. And I think that that was a, you know a good point to make in this plot. But I think it also would have been good to like focus on siblings coming together and supporting each other. And like maybe Amanda and Max are fighting with each other and you know trying to I get the pool today and with my friends you don't get the pool. Something like that mm-hmm. to like yeah. pull that in and have that compare and contrast also. So it's not just like the focus on the money and the wealth and like what you have versus what you don't have in a like physical monetary sense. I think that it would have been really interesting to also feel that from the, you know, relationship side more than just oh, those girls who were my friends are not my friends because they're making fun of me for my dad losing my job. Which, side note, what the fuck is up with all of these kids being, like, terrible? Like, your dad lost his job. I'm going to make fun of you. Like, what the fuck was that? I mean, kids were awful in the 80s and 90s. I certainly yeah. am not denying that there were some truly terrible things that were being said, but I never heard anybody bullying anybody about no. um, their dad getting fired. Which, And that's its a whole, like... I, I I was going to sort of save it for random observations, but it it's it fits here. The the fact that they referred to it as fired the whole time mm-hmm. is fucking bullshit. He was not fired; he was laid off. Right. And, well, and also and like, this his company laid off half half of their employees. Yes, and they have a legal department because apparently Mr. Pike is an attorney? Question mark. I thought he just worked at a company doing businessy type things, but whatever. But he has he works in a legal department for a company, a company that is large enough to have its own legal department, and on top of that, have several attorneys in that legal department. Like this is a big ass company, so if half of the people that work for this company got laid off at the same time on the same day, Mr. Pike is 0% chance the only person in Stony Brook that lost his job that day. 1 million percent. So like... Well, agreed. And may- maybe these kids are being shitty to all of the kids of those other people who got laid off, but like, 
why is this a thing? <laughs> like, and it just seemed like such a weird, like, I, I just, it seemed such a grown-up thing for kids to be, like, insulting each other about. Right. Well, and they were and like, like, what I did can... he do? Why did, he probably deserved yeah. it. Like, why are you even talking about this? I, I can see them bullying about them being poor and right. like, oh, you're going to have to wear a hand-me-downs. But, like, the fact of his losing his job, it was a really weird thing for them to focus on. But going back to your point about, like, the the theme of knowing who your fr- true friends are, I think that that was really effective in the pool plot mm-hmm. line. I thought they that handled that really that nicely. But early in the book, right when Mallory finds out that, you know, her dad might be losing his job, she really – she makes a big point to be like, oh, I'm really going to need my friends more than ever. And uh, while, yes, true and a very good point, this feels like a weird, very weird book for that to be the Danny Tanner moment. Mm-hmm. Like – rely who are your true friends and rely on your friends because does she really rely on them at all and like the pike kids come together right and like they're there for moral support and like i you know i'm here for you which is is a, vastly important and i right. think a, a good plot for kids but like like you were saying i think that that whatever my version of the plot danny tanner moment could have been it would have been more thematically resonant and and your version as well of, of them like pulling together as a family and what you have there makes a lot more sense than like you can lean on people when times are hard because mm-hmm. there's a million other plots that that right that's like every that book would be a good the babysitters yeah. come together to support whoever's having an issue whether it's inside the babysitters club or out like they're always always there for each other like we don't need to talk about that <laughs> That's exactly the point, is that it felt like such a weird thing to emphasize because it felt like a given. Right. Like that, right. Of course they're yeah. there for you. They're always there for you. <laughs> Though I really I really like that you how you talked about the Pike Club too, because I had sort of mixed feelings about that. I went in a little like nervous about it, because you know how sensitive I get around the parentification thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that that actually just thinking about it, I think actually that might have been a good Danny Tanner moment too, is if it if the conversation at the end had been you know, we're really proud of you all for pulling together, but you don't have to do that. Especially right. if, like, the Pikes had sat down with Mallory and been like, this is not your responsibility. Like, I, I, there's a little bit of that, mm-hmm. but I love that they were willing to step up. I love that they were looking for ways that they all seemed happy to do that. But I would have loved if the next piece of that conversation would have been, this is also not your responsibility. Right. You know, or we appreciate you doing this now, but long-term, this should be our job. Like, cause I, I don't want to deny the reality that I'm sure there are kids reading this who right. it is the, the truth of their lives that everybody has to contribute to, you know, in order to keep the family afloat. And that is, you know, it's, it's privileged and overly simplistic of me to say, you know, that's not their job and parents should just never ask their kids to do anything for them because it's, you know, they didn't ask. Yes. All true. And, I think one of the reasons I got so sensitive about it, well, I know one of the reasons I'm sensitive about it is because what connected for me is I am very much like Mallory in this book and that that is very much how I would have been, mm-hmm. like how I am in my family, just sort of taking on that role, like taking the kids together and like trying to make everything all right for them, whether or not they want me to, which has caused <laughs> it's, it's, like its own kind of problems. But I have mentioned a number of times, especially around my sensitivity around parentification, is that I want to be really clear that my parents did not push me into that role. Mm-hmm. Like that was never what was expected of me. I did that to myself. Right. I and you know, like let's be fair. It was because I was aware that there was 
job insecurity. I was aware that, you know, there was other kind of trauma that was in our lives mm-hmm. when I was younger. And I took it upon myself to try to just make everything better. And that's, I mean, that explains so much about who I am. <laughs> but no one asked me right. that. And one of the things that was really important for me as a kid, when I would get too in my head and when I would get too overly anxious and take on too much of that, like, responsibility roles, my mom would say, hey, this is not your problem. This is not for you to worry about. Like, you were not responsible for the family in that way. We're appreciative that you're helping, Mm -hmm. but it's not your responsibility. And I think that that would have been a really good conversation for Mallory. And I feel like that would have been a really good thing for a lot of kids to hear. Right. Because, you know, Mallory's acting in this way. I said that was exactly who I was. I I feel like that is not an uncommon position, especially for eldest kids or – well, I guess it's really – it depends. There's But there's always sort of that peacekeeper, that making everything okay. Right for everyone else role in the family. And so I think that that would have been a great Mm storyline for kids. I don't know. There's so much, I I appreciate the the, the effort or the thought that went Mm -hmm. into, because we've said, you know, they don't even mention it. I just, weirdly enough, are my normal complaints are they don't go far enough or they don't take it seriously enough or they <laughs> right. don't, you know, give it the, the right consideration. And this one, I have the complete opposite reaction in that it has gone too far in that reality direction. And at the end of the day, I don't want reality from the Babysitter's Club books. I right. want some, you know, heartwarming messages. I want some fun hijinks. I want Cokie Mason mailing me fingernail clippings. Right. Like... <laughs> We want, like, reality adjacent. Like, we don't want it to be, like, Harry Potter fantasy. But we – and again, the the books are not for us. <laughs> you know, like, what we want is sort of irrelevant. But I feel like for kids reading it, too, like, you want it to be – I mean, fantasy is the right way. When I said it earlier, that's what I meant. And, like, it's – and aspirational is the wrong word. Like, it is just a fantasy. Like, there are these these girls that live in this lovely community – where they don't have any major life issues. You know, like, there's here and there, you know, there's divorce, there's diabetes. But, like, the way that they told this story, it was too real. You know, like, that, That I think, is the concern. And I think, you know, like you said, we've had plenty of books where we're like, why didn't they take this seriously? And now we're, we're seeing that's why they didn't take it seriously. Because when you take it too seriously, you get this book. And it feels completely out of whack and not like it fits with any of the other books that we've read. And I do think that there was a, there is a way that they could have done this plot line, but done it in a way that fit with the way that we come mm-hmm. to expect Babysitter's Club books to operate and feel as you're reading them. Absolutely. And uh, this one just left me feeling big sad. Like yeah. that's all I could think when I closed the book. I was like, man, yeah. Well, and they try they try so hard at the end to be like he's got this great job, he loves it, he's mm-hmm. doing good work, he picks up hoagies on the way home. You know, Mallory gets to host <laughs> her, make first babys- her first babysitters club sleepover at her house. They're pranking the mean girls. Like look how amazing everything turned out and it's like you can't you can't tack that chapter 15 on and erase the way that the rest of the book made us feel. Right? Speaking of, before we move on from from the the big plot, and because uh, I'm I don't know about you, but I'm getting ready to get into some random observations. Yeah. But this is kind of a halfway. It's part of the big plot, but it, it is kind of a random observation. I do enjoy. You mentioned that 
Mr. Pike was kind of spiraling until Mrs. Pike told, basically said, get your shit together. I did like that they got into, like, just a little bit of the gender role stuff mm-hmm. about, like, him not helping around the house. And she's like, when I'm when I'm the one working, I expect you to be working at home. Right. And, like, they didn't talk about it that way before, but I, or in the book. But first of all, that was another moment that it got a little too real. I was like, ooh. That, like, they've talked about parents fighting before, right. but in a... Like, Stacey mentions that her parents are fighting. Right, we don't actually see the fighting. (laughs) Like, that that was intense. But I was like, ooh, that's interesting. I love that. Mm -hmm. That, like, go, Anne. You know, because I I, I do want to give her as much credit as possible. I feel like sometimes we sound overly harsh, and I don't mean it to be, like, shitting on her. I think that that Anne was trying to do some really amazing things Mm -hmm. here. I think that the limitations of, of... well, I mean, still the limitations of the economy and, and the market and, mm-hmm. and, you know, who's in power about what stories get right. told and, and how. And and we know for a fact that, you know, she was trying to be more subversive with these books. There's so much in there that is. Right. There, that's one of the reasons that they've endured. So I, I appreciated that she tried to yeah. <laughs> slip that in there a little bit. And I was like, okay, again, maybe a little too heavy for a child's, child's book. But yes. Yeah. If we see the words weaponized incompetence, I'm going to be like, what the fuck happened? Did a time traveler write this? Right. How did you even know that that was going to be a phrase that we you know, started using for all of these types of things that people in couples yeah. maybe uh, use against each other? Wild. But yeah, I, I think overall, I'm yeah, careful what you wish for. Like I said yeah. at the beginning, that's what I keep coming back to is that we we said, you know, they never engage with the income inequality or the, the affluence or they never examine that that privilege. And I don't we don't need to again. Yeah, I'm good with the fantasy. Like, let's thanks. Don't you gave me what I asked right. for. Let's not. No, let's not. <laughs> we, we've had that experience. We've learned our lesson. <laughs> we'll, we'll stop asking. <laughs> I have a uh, terrifying pit in my stomach that we are going to be having this same conversation when we get to keep out Claudia. Yeah. <laughs> about, I'm... like That we've been like harping on him to engage in race, harping on him to engage in race, and then we get to it and we're going to be like, no, no, not like that. Right. <laughs> Thank you for giving us what we asked for, but um, please never do it again. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Please, please, and thank you. Yeah. And, and I, so I don't know. I, I think sometimes when we're reading these, uh, 99% of the time, I'm always like, oh, but you should read it anyway. Like, it's an entertaining read. And this one, if you I if read you, it like, if you want to, with us, yeah, I, you I, can I probably skip oh. this one for sure. I mean, or maybe read it and tell us if you had a different, like, yeah. experience of it growing up or, like, now. I, I don't know. It's fascinating. I think especially because this one that – this is one that nearly everybody – if you're reading it from an adult eyes, is going to have some kind of interaction mm-hmm. with with job loss or job insecurity at some point, whether it was you, your friend, your partner, your parent. That's a pretty universal experience. Right. So I, I think that's different than some of the other ones. I certainly have not had a mystery admirer, nor <laughs> um, nor was there a secret in my attic that I needed to uncover or, you know – a secret passage. Right. Um, my my parents, I mean, they were high school sweethearts, but they didn't, you know, come apart and come back right. together with step siblings. So, I, although a lot of those are, are relatable to certainly, to, mm-hmm. but smaller populations, I think this is the one that is is relatable to most people. Right. And I think maybe that that's why it got a little too real. Is that it? It just 
like I said, I, the more I think about it, the more I think that maybe in 1990, they this felt fantasy like, and now it's just too close to the world that we live in. Right. Very fair. So, all right. Well, let's get off of income inequality and depressing. Any fun random observations or are, are all of yours <laughs> sad too? <laughs> I tried to lean into the fun because I figured we were going to need some some fun thoughts. So I have I have four that are like sort of round robin. Okay. So my first one is um, from later in the book when Jesse is babysitting for her siblings because Aunt Cecilia is going shopping. Jesse has chocolate cake for a snack that afternoon. And it was just Reminded me when Aunt Cecilia first moved to town and she told Jesse, Jesse had to have cookies and milk for a snack. And Jesse was very opposed to that because she has to keep her figure. And yes, well, we had, you know, issues with that being her reasoning for not eating cookies as a snack. The fact that she takes a big old hunk of chocolate cake for her snack when Aunt Cecilia is not there seemed like maybe um, a continuity error. <laughs> Either that, or she was just being contrary with Aunt Cecilia, and um, that's you know, honestly both equally likely. Yeah, yes, yes, and what I noticed right off the bat is how many Dibleys. Especially oh my god, that was the next thing on my list. <laughs> so so funny considering our conversation in, in our last episode exactly. with Kelly about distant because that was the introduction of distant, and we were joking that. We're never going to hear that again. And we we even talked about how we thought there was a lot more Dibley. We remembered that being a much bigger thing and, and you know, how it wasn't really there. And then we get to this book and it is Dibley this and Dibley that. All of the descriptions, and, like every single description of one of the girls, everything's Dibley, Dibley something. Like, or just Dibble. They, she uses Dibble as yeah, like dibble. an adjective itself. Like It's like Smurf. Like, right. <laughs> it could be anything. Like anything. But... They like mention she's like like distant, but then we would change it to dibble. It was I, I was like, oh, Mary Lou Kennedy must have like messed up this leg. Exactly. And like, no, no. It's like no, you were supposed to use dibble, dibble in that. What are you thinking? <laughs> stale at least makes sense, yeah. and stale is real, you know, real. But the dibbles everywhere. Although I did really enjoy it mostly. Well, like I said, because it was so funny because we just had that conversation. But it also very much tracked for me as a Mallory thing, mm-hmm. like o- the overuse. Both as a Mallory thing and as an eleven-year-old thing, yep. like learning the cool and and getting hung up and and using it over and over again. I was like, no, that really. Speaking of real in a good way, that absolutely captured yep. that like middle school, junior high, it, like excitement over learning a cool new slang word and like how, especially when it was just one that you and your friends knew, right. because then it was like exclusive. Exactly, it, it, you're yeah, part of the it, in crowd about the slang. Yeah, that made me laugh really hard. But I, I now, I really don't know what to expect. Like, is it going to disappear? Maybe it'll be both. Again? Who knows? Maybe it'll yeah, we'll flip flop back and forth depending which ghostwriter starts writing. Yeah, or maybe it's just Mallory who. That's really true. Is, she's like, just, all she's about the, the one dibbly, that leans so. into the dibble. <laughs> so another thing <laughs> that I is loved, quite a sentence. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, another thing I really loved when. And this is sort of on uh, the the main plot point, but you know, Mr. Pike has 
his first interview on for his new job on Tuesday. He's called back on Thursday. He has another final interview on Friday. And then he has to, you know, wait to find out if he got the job. And Mallory says, well, why can't they do that all at once? Like the three spirits in A Christmas Carol. They didn't make Scrooge wait for three nights. They all visited Mott on Christmas Eve so that he wouldn't miss Christmas Day. Like that's such <laughs> that feels very on brand for Mallory to like compare yes. her dad's job search to A Christmas Carol. And, like, the practicalities of it, like, that was kind of a, a part of I, – I didn't want to go down this rabbit hole too much. But some of the stuff because of my job was, like, there was stuff hanging – like, standing out all over the place mm-hmm. there. But, like, when she was bitching about the multiple interviews and, like, how long to wait and, like, how things are going. And then there's the whole conversation about what jerks they were to wait and fire him till the end of the day and why not, like, make him work all day. And then I was like, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Anyway, so um, I will just say that HR uh, it was all over this book, right. and that was my random <laughs> observation. We don't actually need to get into it. Nice. But the more fun one, well, I don't know fun is, is the right word, but I was thinking about how Claudia was described in this one and was reminded um, of some of our earlier conversations around Claudia's potentially neurodiverse status, because I was getting some serious ADHD vibes mm-hmm. from the way Mallory was describing how she was moving things around and like how things had a place that made sense to her, but not necessarily anything else. Mm-hmm. And Mallory even makes a comment like, I have trouble keeping up with how her brain works. And then, what the but the one that really stood out to me, because I thought it was such a profound observation, and I was so glad it was there for kids wish I had internalized it a little bit mm-hmm. more. Uh, but she points out that she says, I think one of the reasons Claudia doesn't try so much at school is because she's worried that if she tries and still fails, like what what that would right. look like. So if you don't try, then you can't care if you fail right. because you didn't try. And they're, 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 oh, that is one of my biggest procrastination, like my ADHD mind fucks is that like this perfectionism this fear of failure, this fear, like this, oh, it, it is that, that felt very resonant mm-hmm. to me. So that was one, I, I think I remember at the time that we, the, the conversation that we had was, um, to, that I just said I wanted to start paying attention to it more. Mm-hmm. And there hasn't been a ton of it since then, but this one really, really yeah. popped out at me. And I was like, oh, yes, I feel you, girl. I see you. <laughs> Got it. Yep. No, that that was interesting. I I picked up on that as well. So I think I think it'll be interesting to see how that continues. Like you said, you're going to keep an eye on it. So I'm interested to see because I'm sure you will notice it even more than I do. My last stray observation is just not necessarily specific to this book, but what prompted me to think about it. So like at the very beginning of the book, Mallory and Jesse are, you know, parting ways after school and they have a babysitter's club meeting that later that day. And, you know, Mallory asks if Jesse wants to come over and Jesse's like, oh no, I'll see you later at the babysitter's club meeting. And I was like, do the parents in Stony Brook, like not schedule babysitting jobs over the time that babysitter's club meetings occur? Because these girls literally never miss babysitter's club meetings for babysitting, which is shocking to me. <laughs> I have literally never thought about that. And you are exactly right. That is the biggest plot hole of this entire series mm-hmm. to date. I mean, fuck the quantum time loop <laughs> mechanics. <laughs> right. The sheer fact that no one in Stony Brook needs a babysitter from 530 to 6, Monday, Wednesday, or Friday Okay, I, podcast canceled. We, we can't continue. That just broke my brain. Yeah, I and I've never thought of that before either. It's just like suddenly when Jesse was like, oh, yes, I'll see you later at 530 for the Babysitter's Club meeting. And I was like, do these parents 
first not ever schedule their lives across 5.30 to 6, and then also never have traffic come up, never get home late. I, like, the only time that parents are ever late is when it is has to happen for the plot. Like, Mrs. Barrett in Dawn and the Impossible 3. Like, that's the whole point, is that she is bad with time management. She's always late. She's running behind. She's frantic. Other than those situations... The parents always get home exactly when they're supposed to get home. They always are ready to go right when the girls get there. Like, it it goes back to the fantasy thing. Like, this is not how real life works. <laughs> you know? Like, life life happens. Life has issues come up out of nowhere. You have a, a, a board meeting on a Monday night. You need a babysitter from 5 to 8. Oh, no, there's a babysitter's club meeting. I can't make it. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. My mind is just, like... <laughs> I can't even. So, so I won't. I won't bother. And I will just say that my last observation, actually, um, is a uh, very minor, but it's a good transition into some fashion. Although there wasn't a ton of it, mm-hmm. but uh, my my observation was Claudia's outfit in this one. I have a picture of myself at eleven attempting to recreate it while I was standing with my boyfriend at a play practice. Um, oh, he grew up to be gay. It is the most. Um, <laughs> so did I. <laughs> it's like the, makes perfect I, sense. Like I'm, I'm wearing a a the best version I can do of Claudia's outfit from this from this book. So clearly, I read this one because yeah, it, this was this was seminal, and it was an outfit I I, I recreated often um, and was very proud of. So oh, why don't why don't you? Um, <laughs> make my embarrassment complete and tell everyone what I was wearing. Okay, well, I you're going to have to find that picture because we need to share that with the world or at least share it with me because I, I need to see this in reality. <laughs> I can't, I, I, it's it's somewhere. I have to find yeah. it, but uh, yeah. Okay, so um, this is when Mallory is going through the descriptions of all of the Babysitter's Club members. And like you said, there's really not a lot of fashion here, which is shocking because it's a Mallory book. However, her description of Claudia is very on point and very Mallory to be describing Claudia in this much detail. So, And using the word dibble about 17 times. <laughs> so she wears wild clothes like big hats, flowered vests, overlong shirts that belong to her father and which she leaves untucked. Short black pants and then something just a little offbeat like penny loafers from the 1950s with white bobby socks and her jewelry. It's the height of dibbledom. Dimbledum. Oh my God. Uh, That was me saying that. She didn't say that. She makes most of it herself ceramic bead necklaces and big dangly earrings, but in shapes you wouldn't expect. For example, in my ears, I'm allowed to wear studs or very tiny gold hoops, period. Claudia might wear a monkey in one ear and a banana in the other. Also, one of her ears is doubly pierced, so she can wear a hoop and a stud or something in that ear, too. Yep. I used to steal my dad's button downs and wear them with black pants and like penny loafers. I would often wear a tie with it, one of his ties, um, and would wear the mismatched earrings. And Mm -hmm. it was, I thought I was the shit. Actually, my black pants were stirrups. So Uh, they weren't short cropped black pants. They were, they were stirrup. Yeah, it was, I I loved those penny loafers, penny loafers and saddle shoes. I don't know why I was obsessed with 1950 shoes in the 1990s, but I was. Nothing wrong with that. I think we all kind of were. I will just say it was a look and um, we'll, we'll allow everyone to make their own conclusions about whether <laughs> it was good or bad. Leave it at that. Yeah. Yes. It was <laughs> a look. End of story. <laughs> so do you have anything else before we actually do predictions for our next book? 
No, I'm I'm very happy to leave poor Mallory behind. That's yes. that's all I have to to add to the conversation. Agreed. Well, our next book is California Girls. It is a super special. This is one of the ones that I read repeatedly. So I remember this a lot. I don't know. Do you have any recollections of this one? So I have very specific recollections of babysitters doing things in California. And my problem is I'm pretty sure that they go to California a number of times. So I don't know if like which books they are from or which which ones which things happen when but mm-hmm. i remember that one of the times they're there for don's dad's wedding and her stepmom decided to let all of the babysitters be bridesmaids which is a very <laughs> interesting choice of asking five 13 year olds that you've never met before to be your bridesmaids interesting i remember thinking that even as a child and then I know that there was one where Mallory, like, dyes her hair and goes makeup crazy in California, and it, of course, does not go well. And then there's one where somebody's, like, driving around with older kids, but maybe that's a dawn in, like, the California Diaries one. I don't know. But, yeah, that that's all I got. So I, I can't wait to hear your... Uh, <laughs> Your recitation for us. Yeah, so the, this is another one where I, I'm, I've got all the, the story beats. So the girls decide to play the lottery, and that is how the book kicks off. They, That's right. They all buy lottery tickets because the, the lottery is up to some huge number. They – I think six of them lose completely. I think it's either Dawn or Claudia gets all – it's like five of the six numbers. I think it's Dawn because I remember very vividly whoever it is at the end, you know, the the person is like reading the numbers and the person – it's like, you know, first number, yes, second number, yes, third number, and then up to the last yeah. number and, and it's, it, they say, you know, it's eight and the person's like, no, it's five. And it, so they, they still win money and I think they get like – like around $1,400 each, at least in the like paperback version. We'll see if they actually have a number in the electronic one. And if I'm actually remembering that number right, but I'm pretty sure it's a, it's, it's, it's a 1,000 some number of dollars after. So they decide spring break is coming up because now we're at spring break. We just had Halloween, but you know, spring break is here. So they're going, they decide to go visit Don's dad and stay with him for, I think it's two weeks. And so they, you know, buy their plane tickets, they go out there. So Jesse's subplot is that she meets up with Derek Masters because he's back in LA. That's so Derek, right. Yeah, this is the one where she goes to visit him um, on the set and ends up being picked to be an extra for a yes, scene. Yes, yes, yes. I remember. And that. so, and so this is again. He's you know trying to talk her into becoming an actress, and by the end of the trip, she realizes ballet is where my heart is. Again, we get sort of a, a replay of the um, Super Brat episode. So this is the book where Mallory spends all of her money on makeup and hair dye, and you know she basically has to borrow money from Jesse the entire trip because she spends whatever's left after plane tickets on makeup and hair dye and is going crazy and looks ridiculous because she doesn't know anything about makeup and thinks she's being over the top. And she goes the second time Jesse goes to the set to visit Derek, she goes with Jesse and thinks she's going to be, you know, discovered and be a huge star. And she doesn't even get chosen to be an extra for the day. And she's very heartbroken. Oh, Mallory. Claudia meets a boy on the beach. I think his name is Terry. 
And that might be a different book. But she meets a boy. They go to a fancy restaurant and they have escargot. And she doesn't realize what she is ordering because it's a French restaurant. She just points to something and it turns out to be escargot. This is also the book where Stacy is meets older kids on the beach, learns how to surf, and is driving around with them and gets in a car accident. That's and what she I'm thinks about. she thinks she calls Don's house and she talks to Carol, uh, Don's dad's girlfriend, and she, you know, she thinks that Carol's, you know, Carol's trying to like befriend the girls the whole time because she's trying to like make Don like her. And so Stacy thinks like Oh, uh, it, thank God it's Carol. She's not going to tell Mr. Schaefer what happened. And because Carol is an adult, she, of course, tells Mr. Schaefer and everything's fine and she's not injured or anything. Dawn contemplates moving back to California because they spend some time with the We Heart Kids Club. And Christy does some babysitting for a boy that they all think is a problem child. And, you know, she you know, of connects with him it. and he comes with them. One of the, you know, they go to Knott's Berry Farm. They go to Universal Studios and like... The, the boy that is a misbehaving, he comes with them. Like, Christy's like, oh, I'll invite this boy to come along. And so, you know, they he gets scared on the Jaws ride or the King Kong ride or something. And, you know, he finally, you know, Christy's like, oh, he's just a little kid like everybody else. Or, you know, all the other oh, kids geez. we babysit. Marianne does some babysitting for a little girl who I think her mom is dead. And so they connect on that level. And little girl might be sick or something but she comes on the universal studios trip too um did, is it is wow. that everybody did i co- i think i covered everybody i think that yeah. covered everybody yeah yeah I, my only thing is i'll say i'm pretty sure it's uh winter break and not spring break because it was just halloween and this was released in december and typically the, oh okay the super specials have lined up with the season that they are released that makes sense so, okay and that makes weeks, more sense then. christmas break two weeks that makes sense that does make sense okay Okay, yeah, yeah. So, definitely a lot of that was coming back to me, as you said. Like I said, yeah. I, I, I do remember this one. It's It gets just jumbled in all of the, the California stuff is sort of yeah. in one little, like, pocket for me. Have we met Sunny yet? I mean, I know we I don't. I think this is club. when – yeah, I think this is when we meet them because the okay. girls all go to a meeting of the We Heart Kids Club while they're out there. That's right. Yeah, because yes. Christy gets very um, – protective of her ideas and she thinks that she's done everything better because like the we heart kids club is they're very california and laid back and oh Christy's that's like, right what yes. do you mean you don't have a record book what do you mean you don't do this what do you and they're like we do our own thing dude calm down <laughs> yeah yeah and oh i remember i yep I yeah and that's why that. she wants to prove that she knows how to babysit this problem child because she's the best babysitter ever because she's christy thomas I mean, yes, all of this track, <laughs> all of this tracks, and um, yep, yep, yep. And I'll just say that I still, as much as Claudia's neurodiversity speaks to me, I'm still fucking Christy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to read it. I, I, I'm excited for this one. I always yeah. love a good super special. So we are working on our very special super special yes. guest, and we are actually. Very excited because while they are on winter break, we are coming up to summer break. So our next book is the super special California Girls, but we are going to take the month of June off. So this is end of May right now, as you're listening. We're going to take the month of June off for our summer vacation, as we usually do. And then California Girls will be released on Tuesday, July 5th as our welcome back and kick off our end of summer. Well, last year we got to do a fun rewatch of season one. We were hoping that 
we'd have a season two rewatch to do, but um, we'll be back in into the books after California Girls, um, and we'll be starting to pick up some steam. While we don't necessarily have a show to look forward to anymore, which is very sad, we are coming up on like the super mysteries and mm-hmm. the the portrait books and all the you know we're starting to get into some of the specialty books where the world starts expanding. Yep, we, we don't have much many Anne M. Martins left. I don't think. Yeah, we're we're getting close to the end. I think so. We'll have to – this is when we can start tracking, like, do certain books – like, are certain ghostwriters writing all the, you know, individual girls? Like, is one is one the Christie writer and one's the Dawn writer? Or can we tell when we're reading them? Like, mm-hmm. are, are they set up in different ways? Are they – you know, do they do their descriptions slightly differently? It'll be interesting to start paying attention to that as we're getting into it. Yeah. Maybe Mary Lou sticks distant in on her book every time. That's how you know it's a Mary Lou. <laughs> exactly. That's that's her calling card. <laughs> well, we we are excited to keep things going and see where we can go from here and get some some real mysteries, not just mystery adjacent Ooh. books in our main feed. So it'll be it'll be a good time for everyone, especially us, because we get to read all the books. <laughs> Indeed. I, I my head canon is they had so much fun with mystery admirer and that that is just such a perfect perfect book that they're mm-hmm. like we need to lean into this more yeah. more please. more mysteries give us all yes. the mysteries please so um i guess any other final club business now that we've told everyone about summer vacation well let's just remind you where to reach us either before summer vacation or while we're on vacation or after summer vacation <laughs> we love to hear from you anytime you can always find us online um our socials there's instagram and twitter at generation bsc you can hit up our email generation bsc at gmail.com if your thoughts don't fit into whatever how many categories or however many characters Two, twitter allows is you now it 280 now I don't 280 know. now whatever <laughs> Don't know. Don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, social media is a big priority for us, but you can find us there. Yes. But like I said, Gmail, if you have have more thoughts. And you know what? It's been a minute. So if you haven't rated, reviewed, subscribed, all of that in Apple iTunes is really helpful for making sure that people know where to find us. So we look forward to having a fun summer vacation. We've we've both got some, some fun trips planned that we will be all, tell you all about when we come back in July. Yep. Okay. So with that, I'm Kate Vlasic. And I'm Lauren Hunter. And this episode of Generation BSC is now adjourned. Say hello to you.